If you'll turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We are going to be taking some time this week and the next two weeks um, going over the resurrection of our Lord and Savior using Acts chapter 2 as our beginning point. We are uh, going to take some extra time. We're not going to proceed further in the next two weeks. Uh, We're going to take what Peter has to say and we're going to um, let it drive our study in preparation for our celebration of the resurrection Passover week. Um, My wife and I were sitting here this morning and looking through the hymns and there are 48 hymns for Christmas in your hymn book. There are seven under the category of Easter. Um, Should be the other way around in my view, but... um, We want to emphasize this. We spend many weeks preparing and looking forward to a Christmas celebration. Um, And we seldom do that in preparation for the celebration of the resurrection, which far outweighs um, the narrative of the nativity. And so we want to uh, begin driving towards that. And so we'll be emphasizing that in the next few weeks. And of course, we do want you to come for our uh, sunset communion. Um, it's actually a day late. It should have been Wednesday night, but we have Word of Life clubs. So we're um, going to have it, though, Thursday evening in lieu of our prayer service. So that will be at sunset. Don't be late. Okay. It will still be kind of twilight out, but uh, that's when our plan is. All right. If you're in Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin reading once again in uh, the midst. Uh, we're going to read the entirety of of, of uh, Peter's sermon, midst of chapter two. It's verse fourteen. We're going to read um, through verse thirty once again, and uh, we're going to like I said, we're going to leave, leave this passage the next two weeks and let it launch us into the other narratives and important uh, selective passages regarding our Lord's resurrection. All right, Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 14 through verse 39. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. God's word declares, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up 
having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brother, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the first of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Just got to catch my breath there a minute. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we get into our study this morning and introducing really a series to draw us into a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, would you thank you for your love for us. Thank you once again for your presence here as you promised. That all those that seek your face will find you. That those who ask wisdom of you will be granted it. And Lord, we do so now. And pray that through our weak instruments that we are, that you might work in great power to your glory. And we do rejoice in your willingness to move amongst us and to uh, reveal yourself to us through your word, by your spirit. And we pray now that as we look into that word, that you might guard us and our time here, that it might be uh, valuable, worthwhile. It might uh, be centered upon your truth, that it might, again, please you. And we praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we looked at the questions that Peter answered and the, the question that he answered and the question that he desired to come forth as he moved the people from asking the question, whatever could this mean, to bring them to the point of asking the question, what shall we do? That this is really what proclaiming the gospel is all about. It's about moving people who have really a misunderstanding of what this is all about. What does it all mean? 
who are lacking information, um, who are given misinformation, and Satan loves misinformation, right? And uh, this past uh, couple of weeks, there's been a Hollywood movie out, Noah, and I don't watch them, so um, I usually avoid anything that Hollywood has to do with anything in the Bible, because I figure, I assume that it's going to be destructive. Um, but I did watch a two-hour AIG evaluation of it by a committee of seven men, three or two or three, four of them I know, and who went together to watch it so they could give an evaluation of it. And uh, to a man, they were disappointed they went, um, which shouldn't surprise them. So we're dealing with a world that has a lot of misinformation when it comes to the Bible. They are pretty sure that Charlton Heston is exactly the way Moses was, um, that that's how it went down. Uh, that now we have at least two times in recent years where we have tried to portray the flood narrative from the Bible uh, and both doing grave damage to the scriptures and to the characters involved, particularly against God himself. So we're dealing with a world in a post-Christian era that, doesn't hardly even know that they should be asking the first question. Whatever does this mean? So we need to have, as Peter does, to share information and to share the necessary account from God's Word to explain the working of God among men. What What has God's plan been? That He introduced it at the garden in his cursing of the serpent to introduce a deliverer, Jesus Christ, that extends through every account uh, that God's hand is always about redemption. That it's not to do evil against men, but to deliver them. But when they reject his offer, judgment is sure and necessary because of who he is. He is holy, holy, holy God. And so it is still incumbent upon us to answer the question for people around us, whatever could this mean, just as much as it is necessary that we live lives and have conversation with people that draws them to ask that question. What does it mean? What does your life mean? What is it that you're doing? Why are you out here selling stuff that you're not getting any money for? Whatever does it mean? We need to be prepared to answer that question, and Peter does so. But that is not the end of it. The end of it, as we talked last week, is to drive the conversation so that those that we are speaking with come to the point of asking the question, what shall I do? That they need to personalize that message. It's not just information we are communicating. It's a call to decision. It's a call to action. That our faith is not one of just philosophical assent, but rather it is one of commitment of one's life. That we serve this God. That He is our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our God, in addition to our Deliverer. And so when they ask, what shall we do? Peter doesn't give a very brief answer, but rather... Well, we might think it's brief, but rather a very extended answer. We're going to be studying that in several weeks. 
But we want to look at what it is that brings men to this point of saying, what shall we do? What shall we do? And it is no mistake that Peter here is driving home that there is a great contrast between the work of men and the work of God. Several Resurrection Sundays ago, that was the entire theme of the message, was that we have chosen to emphasize the cross and our symbolage of Christianity uh, when uh, all through the book of Acts and into the epistles, we find the cross being representative of the work of men but the resurrection being the work of God. And, and in nowhere is it more powerfully pointed to and contrasted than right here in Peter's sermon, where he repeatedly keeps coming back to this, that you have done this, but God has done something better. You have killed the Holy One, he says in verse 23. You delivered him. You've taken him with lawless hands, and they did. They broke their own laws in convicting Christ and doing it during the night when that wasn't allowed, allowing false witnesses to come forward. That wasn't permitted by the law. They broke their own law in their handling of Jesus Christ. With lawless hands, you took him, you arrested him in the garden, you crucified him, you put him to death. And essentially, this is the work of men. That the works of men lead to death. This we must communicate to individuals. You've done this. That sin leads to death. And that this is the thing that men bring to the table. And whenever we encounter, whenever, many times when I encounter people, one of the things they're going to say is, how can God allow evil to happen? around? How can they allow, allow little children to suffer like that? How can, they allow fam- how can God allow famine to occur in this place? And, and how can... Uh, this disease, you know, wreak havoc on these quote-unquote good people. And they want to very quickly put uh, to the uh, account of God the work of men. And this is Satan's lie. To give men the idea that somehow they have an accusation against God. And Peter here simply destroys that idea. He destroys it by recounting that these are the acts of men. The war is the act of men. That greed and its consequences of poverty are the acts of men. That we are the ones who are imposing these horrific things upon ourselves. That we are the ones that participate in infanticide. We are the ones who, who actively engage uh, in in trotting down our fellow man. We are the ones. This is our work. This is what we bring to the bargaining table with God is sin, death, misery, destruction. This is what we have accomplished. And it never got better because men got more civilized. (laughs) Has it? We've slaughtered more per year today in our country than Hitler ever did at the height of Germany's wickedness against the Jewish people and others, gypsies and Romanians, things like that. We just choose not to recognize those that we slaughter as humans, which is no different than what Hitler did. He just said they're not human, they're subhuman. So we don't count that as murder. Sound familiar? We're not more civilized. We are bringing the exact same atrocities to the table. This is the work of men. 
And Peter wants to rehash that for people. It wasn't so long ago. It was a month and a half ago. It was just a little while ago. Um, you took it and broke every moral law, every, you, you, you slaughtered a righteous man. You took a perfectly innocent man who was doing nothing but good to mankind. And you slaughtered him. You put him to death. This is what you bring. And it is no wonder that having heard that, it says they were cut to the heart in verse 37. Peter doesn't mince words here. He's going to repeatedly say, this is your work. And so when people try to turn that on God and, and hang that on God's shoulders, that he allows that, my question to them is, well, why do you allow it? Why do you perpetrate it? Why do we live like we do? When there are people on this world that are in abject poverty, that today don't have a place to live, do not have food, um, their children are eating mud, sleeping naked, uh, and we don't care. Why do you allow that to happen? Why do you allow that to be perpetrated? Just so you can have another car, a bigger house, and, and a prettier backyard. Why do we allow that? See, this is what we bring to the table. But you see, we always excuse ourselves. That's not, that's just the way life is in our culture. Peter says, no, you've done this. This is the work of men. The work of men has always been destructive. We are the lawless ones, not God. We are the agents of death, both to ourselves and to those around us, not God. We are the ones who devise cruel ways to put someone to death when it could have been done very quickly and simply. We figure out ways to crucify people. And again, don't think that we have grown more civilized in our age. For we have not. Simply read your paper any week. And you'll see just how uncivilized we are. Let's see. Today's, this week's paper. Oh, let's, let me just pick one out of the hat here. Um, a man beheaded his girlfriend while she was still alive. Why? Because she was going to break up with him. Tell me we're not, that we're civilized. That we are not just as wicked in our day and age as men have always been. This is the work of men. And let's put it where it belongs. On our side of the ledger. This is what we have to own. And Peter wants to make sure that they own their sin. And this is what cuts them to the heart. Is that while we bring sin to the table, while in these negotiations between God and man, we always bring evil, God comes with this power and this wonder. He brings deliverance. He brings life. He brings resurrection. He brings exaltation while we bring humiliation of our fellow man. 
And so we find Peter again and again directing our attention squarely upon the work of God. Verse 24, God raised up. You had nothing to do with it. In fact, you tried to stop it from happening. Remember? Let's go to the Romans, get them to seal the tomb, post a guard. We're going to stop this movement in its tracks. Can't stop God's movements in his tracks. You can't do it. As wicked as you are, God raised him up because it was not possible that his Holy One should be held by death. The same description that he has of his son becomes ours as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It is not possible anymore for death or misery or evil to have lasting authority over the children of God. It's not possible. And that's a wonderful thing that God does. God comes along, takes what's evil, and delivers it, brings the power to bear of his of his own son, raises him from the dead, conquering the greatest evil on man, which is death, which we brought upon ourselves with our own sin. And God says, I'll conquer that. Making it impossible that death could hold us who believe in Jesus Christ. Impossible. It's impossible for Christians to stay dead. Isn't that great? This is the power of the resurrection. This is what God brings to the table. And he brings it not with a great price tag. He brings it as a free gift and he offers it there as we bring our evil, our sin, our lawlessness. He brings the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ there and he offers a trade. And the sad part about mankind, by and large today, is that, first of all, they don't even want to come to the table. And they want to blame God for every evil out there and think that they're bringing something positive to the table. Isn't God lucky to have me on his side? And sadly, too many Christians buy into that philosophy, that attitude. So what is... It mean that Christ, that God raised up the Christ. We find that he foreknew it in David. David foreknew it in Psalm 16. That is referred, given to us. We've studied that. We come to verse 30. And, we, and again, he's trying to make it very evident that David wasn't talking about himself, but of someone else. David's dead, buried, and his tomb is with us today. So it wasn't David that was being talked about in Psalm 16. In the case you think that's who it was. So right away in Peter's sermon, he's already anticipating what the religious leaders are going to do with God's word. They're going to twist it. To deny what it really is saying, they twist it. And so Peter's going to set that record straight right away. Before you start saying that's David talking about himself, uh, recognize that David's tomb is right over there. Go visit it. His body's still there. So it's not talking about David. It's talking about the Christ. That according to the flesh, God made an oath. He made an oath, a promise. Way back there in Psalm 16, even before that, all the way back to the garden, God made a promise. And that promise was that his 
son, that deliverer, that seed of a woman would crush Satan, sin, death. That was the promise. God swore an oath through all, every, all the prophets, really, even throughout through Moses and no, all of them, that this would happen. And so we have, first of all, the fact that it is impossible for death to hold God's children because God has sworn by himself that it would not hold us. He has sworn. He has raised us up. As he swore about the Christ, as he, as he gave oath about the Christ being resurrected, so he gives oath repeatedly throughout God's word that those who trust in him will also share in that resurrection. And, and therein we stand. I am fascinated by how many Christians wonder um, at the resurrection. Kind of like, I hope it happens, like it might not. No, it is impossible for death to hold us. For God has sworn an oath that even as Christ, death could not hold him, so those who trust in him, death cannot hold us. But that, ex- that resurrection is not to a neutral place, but to a place of glory. Verse 30 ends with, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He raised up Jesus Christ to certainly deliver men, but also to exalt this one who obeyed him even to the point of death, death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given a name which is above all names. Christ's offer of a resurrection, this is what God's bringing to the table, is not to be resurrected to be servants in the kingdom uh, as slaves or as, as grumbling participants, but rather to be brought in as co-heirs, as co-rulers with Jesus Christ, to be brought into a place with thrones and authority, with glory and honor. This is what God has sworn, and that he has made sure by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They did not do in a hidden corner, but he did right in front of men, right in front of Roman soldiers. And as I've said before, all they had to do was say, present the body. And the sermon's over. We come to really just a couple of verses that I want to emphasize, and I warned you it might be a short one today. And it's in Psalm 16. It's in the quote that we have here in Acts. Verse 27 and 28. It says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's the oath. That's the promise. That's the guarantee of what is in store. And in the verse before it and in the verse after it, there is uh, framed around this oath, this promise of God for Jesus Christ, are two wonderful uh, attributes of those who have this kind of an oath granted to them. In verse 26, we have this statement. 
My heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad, my flesh will rest in hope. Oh, that this should be the attitude of all those who are possessors of the oath God has made that he will not allow his son Jesus and those that trust in him as joint heirs to see corruption. We are not going to be left in the grave. And those who call themselves followers of Christ and the Jehovah's Witness and other groups that think that, well, when you die, that's the end. There is nothing else. How sad. How can they gladly rejoice? How can they have a hope in their flesh? How can their tongue be glad? For in their mind, the oath doesn't apply to them. Death will hold them forever. They will cease to exist. This is not what God has promised. And because God has promised it, it is impossible for it not to happen. So for the Christian who holds to this oath of God, that we are given opportunity to share in by faith in His Son, We should have rejoicing in our heart. Our tongue should be glad. Our flesh will rest in hope. These are the qualities that I guarantee you take out of this place and introduce to the world will get their attention. And they'll start asking you questions like, whatever does this mean? Why are you so glad? Why is your heart so joyful Why do you have such a strong hope in your flesh? On the other side of this oath, that's an anticipation of the oath in verse 26. On the other side of the oath of verse 27 comes this statement in verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. While we are kind of stuck dealing with the men and their evil and what they perpetrate upon each other uh, and then try to blame God for. Um, While we're stuck here, we still have a hope. We still have a confidence. But on the other side of that oath, there is a joy of what? Of glory. Well, full glory or joy in his presence. This is life. What does God bring to the table? He brings to the table the offer of life, while man brings death. God brings to the table righteousness when men bring lawlessness. God brings to the table joy, hope, happiness, gladness. When men bring to the table misery, suffering, sadness. This is what needs to prick men's hearts. When we come to people wanting to talk about the love of God first, we set ourselves up to get into this argumentation over God's responsibility over sin. But when we do what Peter's done here and start with their part, 
What are you bringing to this negotiation with God? What are you bringing? Let's talk about your part. What have you done? Let's look at mankind's lawlessness. Let's look at your lawlessness. Let's look at your rebellion. Let's consider that. And then, what cuts them to the heart, that when all they bring is evil and evil and evil, and God's response to their evil is to bring his love. Now, they're ready to have their hearts cut. You see, if they believe that they are deserving of the love of God, it will not affect them to the point of saying, what must I do? It just never will. As long as they believe that they are worthy recipients of God's love, goodness, grace, and mercy, which goes against the very definition of those terms, um, but as long as they believe that they are worthy recipients, they will never be cut to the heart when introduced with the powerful working of the love of God for them. For they recognize that all I bring is evil and lawlessness and misery and death and destruction. That's all I bring to God. And we come to those statements with such a word, when we understand our wormness, our worminess, there we go. The hymnist, for such a worm as I, Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners. When men come to God recognizing what their guilt is, and then recognizing they deserve punishment, they deserve death immediately, they deserve, um, Everything that should come along with a lawless, uh, taking him lawlessly, crucifying him, having him crucified by the Romans and putting him to death. All that weight of that horrific act that they did against God's righteous servant that should be clearly on their shoulders that should require their death. It should require them to be put to death for what they did to Christ. And God comes to the table and he doesn't bring Judgment. That will come later, based upon whether they accept or reject his offer. He comes with forgiveness, with a sacrifice, with power, with an oath of life. And life that will lead to glory in his presence. Now, once you are confronted with that, now you're cut to the heart. But because we don't like that first half, we, never, we always want to start with the good side. Um, we end up with people thinking they deserve it and then accusing God of evil. And so it is necessary that we begin where scriptures begin, that the law came to point to men's sin uh, for thousands of years, point to men's sin, so that when the Christ came, it would cut our hearts to realize all I ever do is break the law and here's the, the righteous one who is delivering me from it and he comes not to, to destroy me but to bring me life. So it is in our presentation of the gospel that we bring men to understand their sin as hard as that is to do. Um, as difficult as it is for us to confront people and say that is wrong. And you're doing evil. And this is not God's work. This is man's work. It is in your heart. It is there. And it will always come out. 
All we have to do is take a little way, a little bit of restraint, and we find out just how evil people can be. Right? Just take away a little bit of restraint. Last Sunday night we got a little vision of what men are capable of when you take away a little bit of restraint. And a peaceful protest turns into a mob doing wickedness. That's what happens when you take away a little bit of restraint. That's just a little bit of restraint from men. That's what we're capable of. That's what we bring. And when we're confronted with that, and then we see God come into this with this glorious oath and this glorious power and this and this and, and this life and joy and gladness, then we're like, oh, you know, he should be coming there with a sword, with fire. He should be coming to that table ready to destroy it because that's what we deserve. Then we are cut to the heart. Then we begin to respond properly to the love of God when we recognize, I don't deserve it. I have done nothing but offend him. And he comes to the table ready to forgive, ready to deliver, ready to bring me glory. Ready to do me a world of good. I don't deserve it. And this is the power of the resurrection. That we realize that here this one is doing something for us that we suddenly immediately recognize we don't deserve. And this is to be emulated in our relationships with others. And this is why the Bible says that you're not to get revenge on people. How do you respond to people who treat you badly? Bless them. Do not curse them. The world curses its enemies. God seeks to bless his enemies. And as agents of his, when we encounter the world and we have an enemy, we have someone that is antagonistic or hostile to us, um, responding with more hostility is not God's way. And that's why God says, you keep vengeance, it's mine. I'm the only really righteous one. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay them in the time when all their opportunities to respond to his offer, uh, that they have re- if they've rejected all his opportunities, then there comes judgment. Be sure of that. For just as loving as God is, he is just as holy and righteous and just. And justice demands punishment for sin. And if you don't accept Christ's punishment for your sin, then you must suffer it yourself. And so we are to go out in the world and be lambs among wolves. We are to offer peace when given war. We are to give words of of life when, when cursed, even to the point of death. We are to give prayers of deliverance for their desires for our destruction. And it is only in these cases that the church has thrived even in the midst of persecution is when in response to persecution, we didn't fight back. What we did was we loved back. When we love back, we are godly. When we fight back, we are human. We are going back to what man brings to the table. I want to get even. I want to settle the score. I want This isn't godliness. And this will not 
bring anyone to ask the question, what does this mean? It never will. It will never cause men to be cut to their heart to ever come to the question, what shall it must I do? Never. We respond by not ignoring their evil, but by rehearsing it even before them. It says, well, you can say what you want, evil about me, but I'm not going to reciprocate. I'm not going to respond in kind. Because I have an eternal difference made in my life by Jesus Christ. This is the power of the resurrection. Is that we can love others the way God's loved us. And from the writings of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he sets that up as the key to our testimony to the world is that for you who love God, love one another and love others. Do not reciprocate. And that takes preparation. I want to tell you that. Because the natural man is usually the first to jump forward in our lives, in our thinking, in our speech. And one of the benefits of being slow to speech <laughs> is it gives you opportunity to bite your tongue and not say things that you shouldn't say. That'll damage Christ's testimony. To be careful to not reciprocate evil with evil, but to consider, can they do any differently without Christ in their life? And without the working of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, I would be with them in perpetrating evil against others. The power of the resurrection is to bring rejoicing, gladness, and hope because it brings life and joy in the presence of God and it is impossible to be taken away. It is impossible for death to hold us. So is the resurrection possible? The resurrection is sure. Maybe the question Christian needs to ask us, is death possible? Because <laughs> God says it's impossible. It is impossible death should hold us. We cannot doubt, for God has made an oath. And rather, we should go through rejoicing, glad, in hope, prepared for life and a joyful existence in His presence. In the meantime, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit and His work in our life to drive us to bring to our relationships what God brought to our relationship. Life. Hope. Love. When all we brought was misery, death, and hatred. Let that affect your relationships that you might have opportunity to engage people on what does it all mean. That you might bring them to that so important question. What shall we do? When we're in prison, having been beaten with stripes and rods illegally 
our response is to sing. Because the jailer needs to know Christ. We're going to find that event in Acts. This is our example. And this is what causes men to ask, whatever does it mean? And for that jailer coming running into the cell, what must I do? He didn't ask, what must I do? Until he saw these people, when evil was done to them, were not thinking of doing evil to anyone else. They were singing with joy, gladness, and hope. This is your testimony that ought to bring people to having hearts that are cut. And many people don't like that. And asking the question, what shall we do? Be ready with that answer. We're going to study in a few weeks. But we're going to spend some more time on this resurrection the next two weeks. Encourage your participation. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a promise, a sure promise, because you've given it by oath, cannot be broken, it is impossible for it to be taken away, that death should have victory over us. Even it did, as it did not have victory over Jesus, we now share by faith in his work in that promise. And Lord, we rejoice in it. Help our tongues to speak gladness, hearts to be full of joy, and our bodies settled in hope. What you have in store for us Lord, not only for us, but for others, and indeed for all men. So Lord, keep within our vision, within our desires, an understanding of an opportunities, each opportunity, to share Christ in how we respond to the evil of men, that we might do so in a godly fashion and not as men. We might be ready to explain the reason for that hope that is in us at any moment. Lord, we have failed to really do that because we have struck against men and the wisdom of men and the foolishness that is there. Lord, forgive us and we pray that we might make amends that we might not be the barrier between men and God because we chose to be evil instead of righteous toward them. Pray you might guide our lives and our footsteps that they might reflect your love in us and your love for others. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.